Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Remote working has certainly come to the fore during the pandemic. Seemingly overnight, millions left the office and many have yet to return. The widespread rollout of new technology, Zoom and Teams, see many in the workforce embedded in their home for the past 18 months. Is this the future? The new Welsh think tank, the Constructive Policy Centre, has recently published its first paper on the desirability and sustainability of widespread working from home. Joining us tonight to talk through that paper and more, our lead author of that paper, Sarah Williamson, and her colleague, Nicholas Webb. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Hi. Hello, Nick. Hi, Matt. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. I believe Kerry is starting us off with questions this week. So, Yes, evening both. Before we go into that, that paper that you've produced, just quite interested in the Constructive Policy Centre. So with your backgrounds in mind, I think you're both from public affairs and the and policy areas in the health field. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey and uh, how you've got to create the Constructive Policy Centre? It has been a little bit of a journey, but it's it's been quite an inspired journey, I think, in many ways. I mean, my own background, I've worked in public affairs and policy for the best part of 15 years now, uh, much of it in England in the planning and development sector. So I was relatively uh, well into my career before I got to work in the policy sphere in Wales, which is something I've always wanted to do because I've always been fascinated by the way in which devolution has become established, instruments of state. I actually missed voting in the 97 referendum. I was a month too young. Um, So all my adult life, I've been watching devolution. And as a Welshman who's been working in England for a fair bit, it's been a little bit frustrating that I haven't been able to get stuck in and get involved. So in 2019, I took a job in a policy and public affairs role in the health sector in Wales. It's been fascinating. Um, I've met lots of very interested and very talented people in the uh, policy and public affairs field, including Sarah. And I have to say, Sarah and I actually prior to that were in the same classroom during a uh, Cardiff University course. Uh, I was studying international relations. I think Sarah was studying public policy. But a couple of the classes overlapped. However, we managed to completely miss each other during that. And it was only when we started chatting in our our new roles that we realised we'd been in the same class. So my experience is a bit different to Nick. So I only did my undergraduate degree in 2015. um, And then I went straight on, like many others do nowadays, to their master's, where I somehow managed to miss Nick. But I started straight off in the health sector so I've started straight off in health policy which has definitely been really interesting because I started in June 2019 so there's only been a few months before Covid hit so my journey to the Constructive Policy Centre I've got to admit was very much really interesting Nick's initial vague page of adding something to the Welsh policy debate was very intriguing Um, And then from that, obviously, with the others as well, we managed to create the Constructive Policy Centre to really just try and generate ideas and generate discussion as well. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about the actual centre itself then? Is it a centre-right think tank or does the left-right economic axis still hold relevance at the moment? I would say we're definitely not centre-right. Um, I'd say we do board more on the centre, but I would definitely say there's a range of ideas and all four of us that are involved have quite different political views. 
there's a lot of discussion behind the scenes as well before we put out any paper, which is really interesting. The four of us who set up the centre, myself, Sarah, uh, Luca Vetz and Callum Hughes, of those four, both Luke and I have stood in parliamentary elections for the Conservatives. So I understand why somebody might look at it from the outside and deem it to be centre-right. As it happens, none of the four of us, to my knowledge, are actually party members of any party um, at present. But I actually, I recall a few years ago making the case that I really felt that the old left-right spectrum was was very much outdated and that it was something that almost was maintained at a political level, but didn't reflect society. Um, I have to confess, over the last few years, that's been a slightly harder line to hold as we've gone through some of the most polarised times that, uh, that we've known um, in, in recent decades. Having said that, I still think it does just about hold. I don't think we are well served by seeking out answers that are either ideologically right-wing or ideologically left-wing. Um, I think there's far more scope to approach with an open mind, look at the evidence, see what works, but also to avoid the risk of defining an issue as right-wing or left-wing by the other side not talking about it, which I think happens an awful lot and it's sort of self-fulfilling as a result. So we very much wanted to sort of try and rise above left versus right um, as best we can, and I appreciate that's that's our view. Others outside of the, the think tank will come to their own conclusions when they see the various papers we publish. So you mentioned some of the other members of the group there. Um, you know, what, what is the ethos of uh, of the, the, the think tank? And, you know, in, in terms of uh, um, one of the constants you get with think tanks, you know, who does fund you? Uh, in a way, um, I have to say that question slightly riles me when I, when I see it asked of others because it almost dismisses what they've got to say whenever, but I do also appreciate there's an importance in transparency. Um, the, the short answer at this moment in time is very clear from our point of view. We knew it was a question that would get asked because it does get asked a lot. And the four of us are the entire funding at this moment in time of the think tank. And we made a decision right from the very start that we're gonna publish on our website any funding that we do get beyond that, because you kind of don't want the ideas to get lost in this discussion as to which evil megalomaniac might actually be behind it all. Sounds like hero. Uh, Sarah, did you want to pick up on any of those questions? In terms of funding, it is very simple for us, and it would obviously be published on our website. I suppose you did ask about the ethos as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah um, the, which, the, the which... funding side was meant to just be a joke, but <laughs> it's gone down like a lead balloon. Really. <laughs> it, was, it was meant to like link into the Institute of Economic Affairs and those kind of areas. But yeah, just the ethos, where you're trying to take the organisation be useful to, to know. On the one hand, I think we've covered an element of that when we talked about the trying to rise above left versus right. But probably in addition to that, if you look back over, say, the last Senate term, we saw a lot of fragmentation in Welsh politics. You saw umpteen parties emerging from what you started with. Um, often you had to sort of check on a weekly basis to, to find out what the composition of the Senate was. But what we seem to lack a little bit more was this sort of building up of a platform of ideas. And we've got some really good think tanks in Wales. I've attended... IWA events, Centre for Welsh Studies events, Wales Governance Centre events. I was on the board of Gorewell for a, for a period. 
and they all play an important role and we don't see them as a, as a rival. But for our evolving, emerging, still young democracy, we think there's probably scope for, for something more. And what we perhaps lack a little bit in the political sphere at the moment in Wales is we have a, a little bit of a bias conformity, which I think is, is inevitable because we've had Labour in power in some way, shape or form since the outset. So a lot of thinking does go along that sort of broadly social democratic route. Or you have people pushing very firmly against it. And I think what we perhaps lack is that sort of inquisitive questioning of some of the perceived ways of doing politics. And we'd like to be the polite voice in that conversation. Maybe we, we hope to be the people who help unread the room a little bit. No, I think that sounds that sounds great, and it really resonates. I think with us at uh, Hero, I think what we're trying to do, we want more people engaged in Welsh civic life and discussion. So, you know, best of luck with it all. But you know, what it what it does bring us to is is your first paper. I think it's your first paper, and I think Sarah, you're the lead author on this, and this is something I've actually worked in and written about. So, really, quite interested in in what you've written. So it's around remote working and um, working from home. Can you talk us through what drew you to this subject area, Sarah? Yeah, of course. So I've always been quite intrigued by remote working, actually, because I frequently work from home before the pandemic. So I was one of the lucky few that were able to do that because my employer was great and they let me do a hybrid model, which I never called it back then, but now it seems to be the norm to call it that. So the idea of remote working, it was never new to me, but for many people in March, 2020, it became new to them. And for the vast majority, before the pandemic, you physically couldn't work from home because their equipment that they'd need to do the job was in the office. So the pandemic obviously came along and changed all of that. Almost overnight, people were being told you have to work from home, we're closing offices. And it was really, I'm going to say unprecedented, because we've heard that word quite a few times over the last few months or years. Um, but it really was because people didn't know how to work from home. We weren't set up for it. And that really intrigued me, having worked from home myself. So obviously it's been over a year and a half since people began working from home. And from my point of view, there's no clear direction of what the future like, looks like. And that's really interesting for me. So that's particularly what intrigued me to do this as the first paper. Because what we're seeing now is people starting to drift back into the office because that's considered the norm still. So some people have considered working from home a temporary measure, something to control the spread of coronavirus and obviously when that's no longer necessary they're going to start going back into the office because that's the norm we almost want to stop that drifting we want people to sit down and think about their working arrangements and about what they actually want because this is let's be honest the first time many people will have done that in their whole careers what are your concrete recommendations from this report then is there are you have you got anything you're saying to employees or employers saying this is how you should face the future basically 
Yeah, so we do have recommendations within the report um, and we actually separate it into three different aspects. So we do recommendations for the employee, recommendations for the employer and also recommendations for the Welsh Government. But the main one that runs through all of the recommendations is to be flexible. No one really knows what working conditions and working environments going to look like and that probably won't be known for quite a few years. So with everyone, there needs to be a certain element of flexibility. Flexible working was a slow trend that was moving before the pandemic, but now it's becoming ever more important. In terms of the employee, they need to think about themselves. So this is the opportunity to make a long-term shift in working culture. So people should be able to think about themselves and develop with their line manager a solution of what they want to do. And that's where the employer comes into play. They need to sit down and establish the new normal, which I know is another buzzword. But yeah, they really need to because I don't think the office environment will be the go-to for many people nowadays. In terms of the Welsh Government, Obviously, they've got their 30% target, or at least the previous Welsh Government did, and I see the current Welsh Government continuing that as well. So it's just to consider if the 30% target is appropriate and whether it can be achieved long-term, how they're going to support employers in doing this. I don't know if it's just the, the grumpy old trade unionist in me, but to me... Flexibility sounds like a lack of regulation and lack of safeguard for the employee. You know, obviously, we have to, I, we look at the future in the world of work as an opportunity for people to have constructive discussions. That often relies on you having two partners who are willing to go into the discussions on an equal footing with respect. So, and there will always be unscrupulous uh, employers who, who, who will try and take advantage of their employees, won't they? So, what kind of safeguards are there for employees if they if they don't have a, a line manager that's willing to engage in a, in a more constructive discussion about the way they work in the future? Yeah, so definitely, I completely agree. There are employers that will consider the office to be the primary place to work. Um, and I think that's really where employment law comes into play. And in the paper, we do reference domestic abuse and obviously the home environment wouldn't be somewhere they, they can work so it's still really important that those safeguards are put in place and there is an employer's responsibility to ensure that that's the case so I'd say there definitely does need to be assurances put in place that will come with time I think with more people deciding what they want to do it might be the case that employment law needs to be put in place and the Welsh Government need to support that. It is about trying to stop the drift, as Sarah mentioned, um, and it's about trying to get people into focused discussions. But I also think it's an absolutely crucial moment for Welsh Government. Whether one agrees with their aim of 30% working remotely or not, it's possibly the most radical policy divergence from England we've had in 20 years of devolution. And it could give us an economic competitive advantage. It might be 
a setup that attracts talent to Wales rather than going to a less flexible workplace in England. It could attract inward investment in a way that perhaps the more rigid system in England does not. So I think that Welsh Government have talked a very impressive ideal scenario with less cars on the road, less pollution in the air, more people working close to home. It fits in with the foundation economy talk as well of uh, revitalising some of the towns that have perhaps been forgotten as everybody jumps in their car and drives to Cardiff, Swansea. But we're at a real pivot point in that. And one of the things that I think we run the risk of is assuming that the new normal is baked in. Uh, People have talked about the changes that have occurred during coronavirus um, in much the same way as people rebuild after a war. Um, And there's some logic to that. Absolutely, innovation accelerates. We've we've seen that. Uh, People's attitudes change very rapidly. But this isn't a scenario where you have to rebuild your infrastructure. It's very easy to get back into the car and drive to the office. Whereas had the road been blown up, pleasingly it wasn't, but had the road been blown up and a tram system had been built, that builds in a modal shift that people have to go with. The infrastructure is pretty much as it was with the advantage that our technology has improved a little bit. Although I think we've probably taken it for granted that things like uh, Zoom and Teams have actually improved over the last two years as well. We've got so used to them that we don't notice the incremental changes. So I do think there's a real pressure on Welsh government at this moment in time. If they really want to deliver the vision that they've put forward, um, we need to see some serious action Um, at this point in time and perhaps and I'm going to grab a very local example to me because I'm talking to you from Newport today Um, the a number of the businesses in the city centre a city centre that was under pressure before the pandemic but during the pandemic a number of businesses particularly in the relatively new Friars Walk development have um, either gone under or have reduced their their number of stores and unfortunately Newport has often been the place that they've they've missed out. This is already a city where a lot of the office workers were on the edge of the settlement, places like Office of National Statistics, Patent Office and so on, were places that people just drove to and went home from and didn't really interact a great deal with the businesses of the city centre. There are now vacant units in the city centre. We've got a Welsh government that's talking about creating remote working hubs. This is a small window in which they could create a lot of change. Um, And I think we need both the employer, the employee and government to be thinking, which is why I think it was was absolutely right that Sarah separated out those three when she was explaining it, um, to all be open-minded to what the potential could be here, because this is going to be a, a narrow opportunity to do something quite distinctly different, potentially to the rest of the UK. So let's talk a little bit about the rest of the UK. We're recording this on the first day of, of COP. 26. You look at what the UK government is is talking about, how it's encouraging people back into offices. How do you think governments can square that circle of what we thought the opportunities of home working would be, i.e. to reduce the environmental impact of commutes with their desire to get back into the office to, to keep, well, commercial properties and small business owners in city centres happy? How do you how do you square that circle? Nick? I think I understand to an extent where UK government are coming from because when you're the government of the day, you've got to balance the books pretty quickly. Um, you can't necessarily have the long term um, vision for what would be ideal. Um, that said, I, I find it a slightly strange 
circumstances. And I mean, I, I push back a little bit on the suggestion of centre right, but I'm going to talk about Conservatives for a second now. Um, yeah, the, the the Conservative Party traditionally sways between either a laissez-faire approach to uh, business or an industrial strategy approach, and both have got their merits. Um, but to be telling people just to go back into the office seems very un-laissez-faire, and it seems to be completely lacking in any strategy. Um, and indeed, the, the way in which um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Oliver Dowden have done it, it's almost implied that people weren't working unless they were in the office, which seems to be a very analog approach to take to a very digitized world. So I do think that perhaps the rush to, to try and balance the books as quickly as possible is not actually in, in the long-term interests. It probably isn't in the interest of some of the objectives you're going to hear talked about in Glasgow for the next couple of weeks either. The paper talks a lot about the 30% target and we do say that it is very ambitious which rightfully so, if you're going to put a target out there, why not make it ambitious? But in terms of looking at the actual figures, we know that in April 2020, only about 37% of people were exclusively working from home. And then on top of that, there was about another 17% who were working from home sometimes or often. So that's about half the working population working from home. But that is considerably less than other regions, well, other countries even. Scotland had 64% of their population working from home. If you look at the southeast of England, it goes up to 68. So Wales doesn't have as big a population to encourage to work from home. And that is largely due to the fact we've still got quite an industrial, physical workforce. There for example, labourers and people who work in manufacturers can't work from home. And let's not forget the NHS is one of the biggest employers. And although some can work from home, the majority can't. So there's not that many people that the Welsh government can encourage to work from home. And if you keep in mind, the figures I just told you are from April 2020. And that was when we were in a national lockdown everything was changing day by day. There was no other option but to work from home. So that 54% is probably one of the highest we're ever going to have. So the Welsh government to be able to achieve their 30% would need a significant proportion to be able to work from home or close to home because that's also within their target. So like we say in the paper, we're completely supportive of the ambition because it gives that value to individual to say to their employer I do want to work from home but on the other hand it is very ambitious and it might not be easy to maintain. So as I said I, I've written and presented on this for some time now it goes back uh, pre-pandemic more than a few years. I'm really interested in the Welsh Government 30% target in writing this paper, did you find where that's come from? What the rationale was it? Did you, did you find anything along those lines? Well, we know that they want to drive change within the Welsh working culture. And I think it will definitely recognises that people have enjoyed working from home. We know that they want to focus on that community-based remote working hubs. And that's something that Nick's previously mentioned. But in terms of where it 
actually came from. To me, it seemed like it did kind of come out of the blue a bit. When we were actually discussing it, um, to give you a little bit of insight, I was very pro the 30%. Um, and it was actually Sarah that made me stop and think a moment and say, that's arbitrary. And then ran through some of the figures she's just mentioned now about how in the height of the pandemic, it was about 20% less people were able to work from home in Wales and was the case in London and the reality of achieving that. So yeah, I, I don't think a, a, a strong case has been made to explain why 30% is the key figure, other than perhaps it's been based, and this is guesswork, perhaps it's been based to do with traffic movements and emissions and looking at what the, the impact would be on, on the cities of having that element reduced from the, the daily commute. So Sarah, you mentioned very interestingly about the amount of people in Wales who, who couldn't work from home, uh, people who work in manual, manual industries, etc. I think the people who were working in offices and now working in sort of either at home or in hybrid formats have taken for granted all these huge and incredible benefits we get as, as workers now having all this sort of flexibility. But what moves can government take to ensure that those benefits and that freedom isn't just restricted to office workers and is extended to people who work in manual industries? I mean, that's definitely a really good question because I think the Welsh government and employers would probably struggle with that because they still see labourers and like manual workers as purely having to work in their environment. But I think definitely it could be the case that the expansion of technology and definitely being able to do that admin side of work from home. It doesn't necessarily need to be in an office on the side of a building site. It can be within their home. So I think there definitely are things that they can do to encourage that. But it would be very difficult for some industries, I think. I wonder if it's perhaps part of a, of a broader issue here. We, we've had it highlighted to us how clearly... Um, the number of key workers are much broader than we'd have perhaps listed at the start of this. I mean, let's be fair, Amazon delivery drivers um, are, are now key workers because they were amongst the people who kept us going. And when we get to looking at the future of work and the way that we're going to be funding salaries of, of people who are doing manual work at a time where there's considerably more automation, um, I think we're probably going to be faced with a big challenge to better reflect the importance of some of these relatively low paid, often in the case of delivery drivers, often with poor working conditions. Uh, I think we've we've had a shake and probably a lot of us who maybe weren't so aware of the challenges that they were facing now realise how essential they are and that that does need to be reflected in, in future pay packets, to be honest, in future um, job security. So one of the things I wrote about when looking in this area was looking at it from a co-working perspective. So it wasn't so much homeworking, it was the remote aspect of it, which I think still doesn't feature greatly in a lot of the discussions because the pandemic means people are working at home. But your paper is very much focused on the home rather than that kind of nearby local remote side of it. Is that just my interpretation or was there a reason for, for that focus? So I would say the paper definitely does have a tendency to focus on the home. And that is purely because it's familiar. People who have worked from home during the pandemic 
know what homeworking means. But in terms of remote working, it doesn't necessarily have a set definition. It could be someone working closer to home, someone working in the home, remote working hubs, or it could mean someone working for a company in Wales but living in France. So there's different, it's got so many options and that's fantastic. But for many people, whenever they hear remote working, they instantly think of working from home because that's what they're familiar with. So we did tend to focus quite heavily on working from home because that's people's experiences so far. And what we tried to do was provoke thoughts and discussion of whether that is suitable for them. Yeah, totally. I think one of the things which doesn't come over in a lot of the pandemic discussions is that um, the, the problems with home working in terms of people having the space, there's environmental issues, which we don't have so much in offices. But I, I can take over the pod here. I'm beginning to. Sorry. Nick, did you want to come in on that at all? I was going to acknowledge it was a very perceptive question. Possibly I, when reading through it, I was actually reading home and thinking home and remote. And perhaps naturally, because people have been at home, we've tended to get into using the language of that. I suppose one of the issues to consider really, though, is is collaboration in all this. I think collaboration gets thrown around a little bit loosely at times. And those who are making arguments that we should be back in the office are arguing that we need to be back in the office to collaborate with colleagues. Um, But I'd argue that's probably overly simplistic. There are times when a remote working hub in a a town or city centre might provide that collaboration opportunity if you're in a sector where uh, perhaps in a creative sector where you're bumping into other creatives, it works well in that setting. Um, But I also think that the technology is allowing for greater collaboration. Um, In my own nine to five role, um, the people I work closest with are my counterparts in Scotland and Northern Ireland, rather than um, the people in my office in Cardiff, um, as nice as it is to spend time with them as well, I should quickly add. So just just one final point, really, on um, the, the paper you've produced. You know, you're a little non-committal on where you think the future will will take us. Do you want to try and explore that a little bit now? Where do you think um, we will be going as the pandemic hopefully reduces further? Will we slip back into those old habits of going into an office or will technology and opportunities? And for me, I actually think the private sector and costs will be one of the big drivers of where we work and um, taking people out of expensive real estate in city centres, if it can be done, that is going to be an attractive option. So where where do you think the future might take us? I think that's true, but I still think it takes bravery in the boardroom. I still think that the the scope to drift back to old habits is very easy, the the certainty of what's known. And that's why really I'm seeing it as something where I think the government needs to take a lead on at least facilitating the discussions. Eyes have been opened amongst the private sector the potential advantages are clear. I mean, partly, as you mentioned, the cost of, of premises, but also in reality, somebody working from home, I mean, I, I, as it happened, Sarah included in the report, the commute that I used to take as, as one of the cost points. Um, and it was 840 pounds traveling um, annually by train from uh, Newport to Cardiff, a relatively short journey in the scheme of commuting. In reality, in real terms, if I wasn't required to do that, that's a pay rise. And once you include the tax, you get into around about a thousand pounds pay rise at a time when it's quite a competitive jobs market. 
it's actually an attractive option for the employer to see the benefits at no cost to them of providing the employee, it, well, putting them in a better position than they were beforehand when they had to travel into the office every day. Um, so I do think that there's there's benefits to be seen there, but the the temptation to go back to what you know is always going to be strong and it's going to take some bold leadership along the way, both in the private and the public sector. Well, thanks to Kerry stealing my uh, last substantive question, I'm going to move on to something else um, and talk about one of the other big topics that's hit the world of work and the discussion about the way we work during the pandemic, which is the concept of a, a UBI. Is that something that you think the the, the centre will, will start to look at in the future, perhaps, or uh, using a universal basic income as a, as a subsidy for work, as a, as a way to provide other freedoms that, like we said, others in other industries aren't necessarily uh, presented with due to home working? I think the overall topic of the future of work is one of the biggest challenges we, we face at the moment. It's interesting at present that you've got a few ideas out there. Universal basic income, I think, is probably a brilliant starting point to a discussion as opposed to necessarily the end point. Those, that idea is out there. The four-day working week is something that Plaid Cymru have discussed at length. Um, just to, just to jump in there, that, that's a Green Party uh, policy there, Nick. <laughs> um, you, you have these ideas which are coming forward, obviously remote working itself as part of that discussion. I worry a little bit that too much of the argument seems to be quite a, and going back to that spectrum, I'm afraid, quite a political left socialist argument for these and that's absolutely legitimate. There's definitely a socialist argument for UBI and four-day working weeks and so on. But they in themselves are not distinctly left-wing ideas. Indeed, you, in the case of UBI, you famously have Hayek talking about it. And I think there's a risk that if there isn't a broad discussion across the spectrum and it becomes everybody's issue to look at the future of work, because we could be a bit parochial here. We could be talking about, well you know, you, you, your hands off, you let business develop things and it, it slowly works. And that, you know, economically, that worked during the Industrial Revolution. We are, again, going back to what's happening in Glasgow this week, discussing the fallout of some of what happened in an unregulated Industrial Revolution. But also, I think it's naive when you consider how quickly digital iterations come forward. There is a race on at this moment in time between the United States and China to develop artificial general intelligence. All along the way, automation is leaping forward. We can't be too hands off in this discussion. Um, I think Europe as a continent faces a huge challenge to remain relevant in this. Certainly, the political debate around these issues, we, we need more than somebody saying something and then somebody else dismissing that as partisan ideal. Um, we need to have a serious conversation about how we are going to fund people's lives when automation extends even further than it currently does. And the point at which we hit artificial general intelligence, yes, it's guesswork when that's going to be. And there are people far more educated than me who can guess at that. But it's coming. It's going to happen. And we don't want to be caught out when it does happen. I find it quite interesting to touch again on, on the politics of this. Uh, I was listening just last week to the European People's Party group podcast, um, the centre-right group in, in the European Parliament, um, and the group that until 2006, I think, the Conservatives were part of. Um, so they're kind of sister parties. 
and they were discussing the future employment in that they've had a couple of um, editions before that where they were discussing artificial intelligence. So I think in other in other countries, this discussion is cutting across the political spectrum a bit more than it is here. I don't mean to say this as a great criticism, but it's more a nudge. I, I think that the debate will gain considerably if we've got centre-right views coming in on this as well as the ideas being brought forward by the Green Party and Plaid Cymru stealing their ideas, by Labour, and I, I very much get the feeling that, that Lee Waters is very much a driving force between a lot of this vision that, that Labour are bringing forward, and obviously it remains to be seen uh, what role he has in, in future Welsh governments as well and how influential that's going to be as to whether some of these drivers remain in place. But the debate feels a little too reserved for the world around us where there is an awful lot happening very, very quickly. And I fear when, when people talk about the, the decline of the West, that sometimes it's a little bit self-fulfilling and we need to see people across the political spectrum stepping up to a serious debate about this rather than it just being here's an idea and the other side shout that costs too much that's not possible. On that point Nick do you think that one of the biggest problems we've got in Wales in order to do this sort of radical policy whether that's left right or centre is the lack of economic levers to to drive real change? I think we are probably in a position where we all now know that the current devolution settlement doesn't work as we need it to. It was slightly strange going into the last Senate election. The only party who was supporting the status quo were the Conservatives, and that was only because they didn't want further powers and, and change to occur and distraction from uh, the day-to-day -day business, which is, is not an illegitimate point, but it does suggest that if nobody's supporting the current system then it's unsustainable in the fairly short term certainly in the long term i have to say i mean going back to us as a think tank we've, we've very much been of the view that we don't want to take a strong position on what the future constitution arrangement should be uh, but i think it would be fair to say that we would accept that there is a need to seriously look at what is necessary to pragmatically make the changes that are required uh, we'd steer away from the ideology, but um, when there's a, a need for levers to be in Cardiff Bay uh, rather than London, then we would be minded to support that in most cases. We've got a few papers in the mix, actually, and the majority of them do focus on Wales, so we are hoping to look at some decentralisation work soon. But like this paper, we can start with one idea and end up with something completely different. Um, this one was going to be on the economic benefits of working from home and it turned into more of an individual stance of things, which is a great way to have it. It's very fluid. But yes, we are looking further down the line to do a few more papers on, say, um, electoral reform and safeguarding within political parties, which will be really interesting as well. You completely guessed my final question. So... <laughs> uh... What, what, so above and beyond that, is there anything else you can tell us about uh, other upcoming papers? Or is it going to, is it, is it a bit more of a free flow thought experiment? Like I think uh, well, it could possibly honest, be. I, I wrote about two thirds of one paper and then we ditched it. So um, <laughs> I, I'm wary to say too much with, with too much certainty. Uh, we would like to get something else out before the end of the year. There's a couple of topics we're, we're looking at that are quite advanced. 
So hopefully there will be something else um, coming out reasonably soon. And then I'm hoping that having got into a bit of a rhythm, we learned a lot from the practical process of this. I won't bore your listeners with the details of it, but there's no way we'd have started the way that we did in hindsight. But we got a really good paper out of it in the end, and we're learning from that, and we're taking things forward on that basis. At the end of the day, all four of us are doing this on a voluntary basis. Well, as I mentioned, we've actually chipped in the funding at the moment, so it's slightly less than voluntary. So we're having to do it in our own time. That's going to have its own limitations, and we don't want to be unrealistic about what we can achieve. But if we can make a small contribution, then we'll be, we'll be really pleased with that. And at times, even if it stimulates somebody to think completely differently and they come up with a totally different answer to us, if we were part of that stimulus, I will take that as a bit of a success. Well, I just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to both of you. If people want to hear more from you, where can they find you on Twitter? Sarah, do you want to start us off? Oh, I'm not very good at Twitter, so I think Nick would probably be the best one to answer that. Have you actually forgotten what your Twitter address is? Yes. Sarah is at SarahWill2410. Um, <laughs> I'm at NDWeb with two Bs. Wonderful. And does the centre have a Twitter handle? It does. It's constructive poll. We ran out of letters. <laughs> well, thank you very much for both coming on. Remotely desirable, the sustainability of returning to the office from the Constructive Policy Centre is out now. We'll include a little link in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please do not forget to find us on Medium at Here I Plug Cymru, on Facebook at Here I Plug Cymru, and on Twitter at Here I Plug. Thank you for listening to Here I. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.